who was born with the precious blood of Jesus Christ will come to the altar and the Father's arms are open wide forgiveness it was born with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a Savior. song that we sing of just an unadulterated pure form of worship to sing oh what a savior isn't he wonderful bow down before him for he is lord of all and i know maybe this is the time right now in life where you're making some resolutions for 2017 some things you want to change some things you want to do but i'll tell you that the most important thing that you could do in this entire year is to seek out a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, because he loved us enough to come to earth as a man and shed his blood so that our sins, the things that keep us away from God, the things that we do wrong, would be paid for. So that whoever believes in him would never die, but they'd have eternal life with the Father. We're going to move into our time of communion now where we celebrate that, where we remember just exactly what Jesus did for us because it's at the center of everything we do. So I want to encourage you this morning to make a commitment in this time as, as you spend time as the trays are passed before you take communion, just spend some time making a commitment, searching out in your heart where you're at with God today and thank Jesus for what he's done and ask him to draw you closer and deeper into that relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We know that you loved us more than we could ever imagine, more than we could ever measure up to when you gave Jesus for us on the cross. Lord, in such an incredible and passionate way that the only perfect man to walk this earth would give his life up for those of us that did not deserve it and that you would come and make a home in our hearts and change us from the inside out. Jesus, we thank you for the blood that you shed for us, the sacrifice that was paid for us. Lord, we don't deserve it, but we're so thankful for that grace. Lord, thank you for loving us so much. Pray that you change us today.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Happy New Year, uh, what I wanted to communicate. Uh, it's good to see you here. You know, at uh, the time of year, we start not only to look ahead to the New Year, but we reflect on the past and what God has done in our lives. And sometimes it's good to look not just a year back, but a long way back. And I was uh, thinking that this year, in May of this year, uh, Lori and I will complete uh, or 
will complete 20 years of ministry in Versailles, which is almost a third of my life, which is pretty amazing. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of excited about that. And, um, but, but in looking over that, I was thinking about what the last 20 years of our life have, have spent here in this church. And, um, and you know, it, it all has to do with relationships and, uh, and people. And uh, our mission as a church is to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. And the way that we do that is by loving God, loving people, and by making disciples who make disciples. And you're going to hear more about that in the weeks to come. That's kind of setting you up for our next series that will begin next week. But, um, but for today, I was thinking about that and just about how we, when we give, we invest in people and we develop people and we move people on a journey toward Jesus. And that, that means people in all walks of life and all ages and, and from all different backgrounds. And I share that because uh, today I'm, I'm a really proud father. Uh, my son is here today. Uh, he hasn't been home for three years um, here. It's been a year and a half since we saw him. They came in this week, he and his, his wonderful wife, uh, Ashley. Uh, but, you know, you guys uh, had a big part in making him who he is today. And um, so that I'm so grateful for that. When you give, you develop people. And that's why we as a church put a high priority on our children and students' ministries because we know that they really matter. And as we give and as we uh, encourage, provide environments, uh, as you guys serve and working with our, our children and students, you help develop them much more than what parents can do. You work in conjunction with what God's doing in their lives and what parents are doing in the homes. And so I want to thank you and let you know that not only is your presence an impact, but your giving is an impact as well to make sure that we have environments, that we have staff, that we have um, volunteers who are uh, supported and equipped uh, to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. So in just a few moments, uh, my son Kyle is going to come and share and speak, and uh, I'm excited about it, and um, let's ask God to bless, bless him. Dear Lord, we just come today, and I want to thank you for what you've done in my life and with my family, and specifically with Kyle today. Thank you that he's here to, to share the good news of Jesus. God, thank you uh, that you have blessed us as parents and that we have had a Christian community uh, for almost 20 years that we could raise our kids in to not only know Jesus, but become great servants uh, for you. And Lord, uh, as we give now, help us to connect our giving to the uh, result of uh, lives changed, young people raised up knowing the Lord, going out into the world, making a difference, and uh, just the impact, not only in my family, uh, but in many families and hundreds and hundreds of people who have uh, been impacted by our giving and by this church. We love you, Lord. We worship you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Good morning. It's good to, uh, to be here, see familiar faces. Uh, it's good not to have to speak through a translator, and uh, it's all good. Uh, as my dad has probably shared with you, I live in South Korea with my wife. We live in a city called Pohong. Um, if you ever heard of it, I'd be very surprised. It's a pretty small city, about 500,000 people. It's very small for Asia. And uh, I teach at an international school there, a Christian school, called Handong International School. My wife teaches at the university. We're on the campus of that university, Handong Global University. She teaches English, which is what she was trained to do. I teach Bible, which is what I trained to do. And we do it uh, in the context of Korea, which, at least for me, I never imagined I would ever be there. But I'm thankful, and it's been a blessing. We've been there for a year and a half. We're going to be there for at least two more years. So if you will uh, pray for us and pray for... Uh, South Korea, they are the most Christian country in Asia. They send a lot of missionaries to China, to Russia, uh, to other parts of Southeastern Asia. Um, But their church, just like anywhere else, they have a lot of trials and struggles. And my school is full of missionary kids, Korean missionary kids, who uh, face many challenges, many struggles, being Korean, which is very homogenous, very culturally tight but sometimes not feeling Korean at all because they grew up in Sri Lanka or China or Japan and they hardly even speak their native language, which to look Korean and not to sound Korean uh, is kind of a dishonor for them. And so we work with them on that and help them keep the gospel central in everything that they do. So as I was saying, uh, it's good to be here. Um, Several people have commented on on my suit. I'm not trying to show my dad up. I just didn't want to, I didn't want Jimmy Chisholm to show me up. Um, Laughter so I knew as soon as dad asked, I was like, I got to bring the suit, honey, pack it. Um, also, my grandparents are coming, and, and this is just a safe way to dress. Um, I try to, you know, I'm not that smart, but I'm smart enough to know how to avoid conflict. So the last time I was able to speak here uh, was in 2007. Uh, I was ordained when I graduated from Bible college, and, um, you know, I didn't quite finish what I was going to say. So as I was saying, um, 10 years ago, a decade ago, um, a lot has happened in a decade uh, to the world, to our country, to I'm sure in your life, I know in my life, I don't even know how many jobs I've had, how many places I've lived, um, but there have been some consistent things. And one of the consistent things I've seen everywhere I've been, I, I went on to, to seminary in Ohio, I've worked a part of four different church plants, uh, both uh, being paid and, and bivocationally. Uh, worked for a Bible software company, and then finally, my wife and I are now in Korea, in the Korean context, and um, I've been able to visit uh, churches in India and Bangladesh, churches in Russia, just this year, just last year. Um, The week I was there, the Russian government made a law that you could no longer evangelize, Um, and I was able to see the Christians respond to that. They street evangelized up until the day it became illegal, and they were waiting to see how serious the government was, and just being so faithful uh, where they are. Um, but in all these places, uh, a couple things are, are the same. The gospel is always under assault. The gospel is always under assault. Uh, I hear it uh, from my students. I've been on the West Coast, uh, Portland, Oregon, um, one of the least Christian cities. And was, my wife and I met as part of a church plant there. Um, we had people throwing rocks through our windows, and I was like... I, at one point in my life, I planned to go to India, and I was expecting that kind of behavior there, but, but not here. And we had to take uh, 
microfiber rags and clean off children's toys because people had shattered glass over them. Everywhere I go, the gospel is under assault. And everywhere I go, the gospel is never stopped. Um, people, Christians are crazy. They're crazy. Uh, we have a good friend, who, one of my wife's colleagues, who grew, uh, spent a long time in Syria. And so naturally I asked him, about, you know, what's going on in, in Syria, the churches you volunteered at, that you worked with and all that. And he said, the pastor refuses to leave. He refuses to leave. And all these Muslim people are becoming Christian. Everywhere. The gospel is under assault. And the gospel never dies. And I want to start in a passage in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, the church, this church, I mean, the church in general was very young. This church was also very young. They had just been planted, and I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church plant or, or heard of one, but typically when the gospel comes, the most central aspects, the most central truths of the gospel are made painstakingly clear. And what's crazy is Paul has spent the majority of this letter talking to them about all these things they've forgotten already. And he finally gets close to the end of his book, and, and this is what he says. He says, uh, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. And again, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. And so, again, the context, this is one of the first churches planted, and they had some serious problems. Um, they had problems that would make even the, some of the friends I made working in different, different industries in Portland, Oregon kind of squirm. Um, and Christian people struggling with deep-rooted sexual sins, uh, deep-rooted uh, sins of arrogance. They were treating poor people uh, badly when they had fellowship meals. They were getting drunk on communion wine, um, things that would shock us today. And he's having to remind them of these basic things, but he finally centers them back because one of the things that was happening was these popular teachers were coming and teaching that the resurrection was not true. The resurrection was not true. And he goes on after this to say, if the resurrection isn't true, we don't really have a faith. And we're to be pitied more than anyone else. And today, if you pay attention to some of the more popular literature being produced in Christian publishing industry. There are people denying the resurrection, saying you can be a Christian without believing in the resurrection. There's a really popular uh, a movie that will probably be popular coming out by uh, famous director Martin Scorsese called Silence. It's about Jesuit missionaries to Japan in the Middle Ages. And they were ruthlessly in, uh, treated, persecuted, and uh, this book was written by a Japanese guy who uh, claimed to be a Christian. And as good as this story is, it's called Silence. It'll come out this week. As good as this story is, this author also wrote a book on the life of Jesus. Trying to get people in Japan, which is only 1%, less than 1% Christian, 
to accept his version of Christ. And I'm not surprised that it's still 1% Christian if he's the representative because he gets to the resurrection and he says it didn't really happen. Jesus is just a good example, but he's not supernatural. He's not divine in any way. And so the gospel is constantly under assault. And we have several good friends in Japan in the Japanese context doing amazing work for the gospel there. So that's the context. My first point is the gospel is something that can be forgotten. And the tricky thing is that usually it's not that we forget that it ever happened. It's not that we forget that the gospel is there, that it's true. Uh, It's that we forget to keep it central. Paul says, I want to remind you of of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand for what, I pa- for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So even the order in which we treat the central truth, something we might think of as elementary or basic, that Jesus died for our sin, what he goes on to explain, it's not, it's not that we forget that that happened, it's sometimes we forget that it's central. It's not that we forget it's important, it's a part of our faith, but it might not be the most important, and it slowly gets forgotten. And so... Sometimes we think of it being forgotten in in a culture like the Middle East or something like that. But we individually and personally, this is written to Christians who have forgotten the gospel. So for myself, for ourselves as a a church, as a Christian uh, church, as in a society where there are still many Christians, um, we can forget the gospel. My second point is that the gospel has details and they matter. Okay, it's like... Uh, I could say, I know who my wife is, but if I forget certain details, she will not feel known, will she? No. If I forget when our anniversary is or her birthday or something like that, that's an important detail. In the same way, and, and it's true for anything, I, I think I was, I'm kind of amazed that my oldest sister, Lindsay, has become a, the biggest UK fan that I know. Uh, I thought, I just didn't think that would happen. I'm always amazed that she's such a big UK fan. And she doesn't just know uh, the basics of UK. She knows every player, every stat. She can tell you, talk to you in detail. I'm sure some of you feel the same way. When you're passionate about something, when you love something, you don't just know the basic information. You have an encyclopedic knowledge about that thing. Uh, for my kids, uh, my kids, not my kids. I don't have any surprise children. <laughs> my students, my students. Uh, they love anime and manga, these, these animations, these cartoons, and they just, they've read reams of graphic novels, and they can tell me every single thing about every single character, and so sometimes I challenge them, you know all these details about, you know, these animated warriors and ninjas and gods and goddesses, how much do we know about Christ and about his gospel? There are three basic things, I just, for myself, that help me align, and it's, it's embedded in all the language of the New Testament, of the Bible, um, but particularly in Paul. And why is that? Paul's one of the last writers. He goes on to say, according to the scriptures, these things are true. His scriptures were the Old Testament. So the first church, they taught the gospel from the Old Testament. And Jesus, we know from the end of the gospels, when he rose from the dead, he walks with some of his followers and he meets with his followers. And he says, I fulfilled all these things. And it says he opened the scriptures to them. They're talking about the Old Testament. Passages like Isaiah 53 that predicted his death. Passages like Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which were his final words on the cross. 
And he goes on to live the realities that David wrote about in Psalm 22, 700 years earlier. So he explains the gospel to that. And Paul, as one of, as one of the last writers, is synthesizing all the information. One of the final writers with the most information. And that's why his books like Romans or Corinthians and his other letters are so dense and rich with material. It's because he has so much to work with. And we have the gift of his writing. And even Peter, in one of his letters, says... What Paul writes is sometimes hard to understand. And evil men twist his words like they do the other scriptures. He's already calling what Paul is writing, writing as his contemporary. He's already calling it scripture. So anyway, the gospel has details and they matter. I want to use another thing that Paul wrote to talk about these, these three main points of the gospel that help me align. I teach them to my students. Uh, I share them when I can. It's, uh, in some sense, it's very common and basic, but in another sense, very easy to forget. And something I would challenge you as you set your New Year's resolutions, as you think about the changes you want to make or the things you want to do this year, to remember these things. So I want to turn to Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6. And highlight the end section on the three things that we're going to talk about today. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident in this, and if you're a note taker or a highlighter, get it ready. I'm a teacher, so I might, I might default to that language. It's like a curse. I can't stop. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So if you're, this is at the beginning of his letter to Philippians, and he goes on to say other amazing things, but he, he sets it up in the context this way, and I would highlight, he who began a good work in you, and if you're a note taker, or if you're a mental note taker, that's what some of my students say, I'm taking mental notes. It's like, all right, we'll see how that works on the test. I can't test you, but maybe dad will, I don't know. He who began a good work in you, I would highlight it, and I would write justified justified. We'll carry it on to completion. I would highlight that. There's a multicolored highlighter. You can just imagine it. You uh, will carry it on to completion. I would highlight that and write sanctified until the day of Christ Jesus. And I would highlight that last part until the day of Christ Jesus and I would write glorified. So the first thing, I've got Three points and three subpoints, and that's how you maneuver a six-point message and call it a three-point message and trick people. First thing is, he says, remember the gospel. I want you to remember you've been justified. Remember you've been justified. Consider this like the anatomy of the gospel. If the gospel, as one major unit with all these other points, is a body, we're looking at the anatomy, three parts of the anatomy. What this means is we have been saved from the penalty of sin, full stop. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. And I just want to look at one more verse for this part, Romans 5, 1 and 2, where Paul goes really deep on this issue of justification. This is what, what Martin Luther was studying when he caused a big stir and created the Protestant church as we know it. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith 
into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Notice similar language in all his different letters because he's trying to tell every church about these things. We have been justified there in first one. We have been justified through faith, and we have peace with God. When we forget justification, we try to justify ourselves. When we forget justification, we try to justify ourselves. We will try to do good things to earn God's favor. This is why, and you might say, well, isn't that a good thing? This is why it's not, because we never can. All have fallen short of the glory of God. It's like, well, can't we please God? Isn't he happier when I do good things versus when I do bad things? Yes, but it doesn't save you. If we don't believe that, if we forget that, we're looking at the cross of Christ and asking why it was necessary. Beaten to death, bloodied, the Son of God, as horrible as that was, was necessary and was predestined and foreordained and planned by God, this horrible thing, because we can never justify ourselves. We have been saved from sin's penalty. When we accept Christ, what this means is you were never punished for your sin, ever. Well, I did this one bad thing, and then something bad happened to me, and I thought God was punishing me. He may have been helping you. He may have been disciplining you. But it's more like a coach making a, a lazy person run a lap than it is than it is someone putting you in jail to pay off your, your penalty for having murdered someone. It's never punitive with God. If you accept Christ, you no longer have the right to the punishment of your sin. Jesus has taken it all. There's a detail to justification too, and I'm not going to deep dive anymore. Uh, but this, it's called the exchange. Jesus not only takes our sin and our shame and all the evil that is in our life, he gives us his righteousness. So if you're wondering, how can God look at me and all my sin and see anything but the sin? It's because Christ is there and he sees Christ's life in you. And that's true. And if you want to see a church start to die or a Christian organization or institution and you want to see it start to, to teeter off into something other than Christian, watch them start to challenge the reality of justification. And then they will, they might be big on social justice, which is good. They might be big on certain good behaviors and good activities and good things, but if they are doing it to justify themselves, they will quickly become secular, humanistic. They will begin to be very prideful about what man can do, and they won't be relying on Jesus to justify them before God. And that's something we can never forget. We can never forget. I'll never forget this one moment where the reality and the power of that came into my mind in a fresh way. Uh, when I was in seminary, my friends and I, uh, I, had, I had three friends. Um, I had more than three friends, but I had three really close friends. <laughs> three really close friends. Um, and uh, we were crazy, you know. Um, we were living together in one house. You can imagine, you know, a bachelor pad. Um, but one of us was from India. Not me, but another guy. And uh, we learned how to make Indian food, and we became obsessed with it. And little did we know that the university next to our seminary would have 600 Indian international students doing their Masters of Science in Computers and Masters of Business and things like that. Uh, and so we met all of them, um, and they were like, you cook like our mom. And uh, I said, well, that's awesome. I don't know what else to say to that. Um, I love you. No, I don't know. So uh, we cooked and cooked, and, and most of them were Hindu. 
And uh, there, was, there was a few of them that we got really close to, as you know happens. And this one girl, her name was Shubra. I can't remember what her major was, but she would come and she would like, she was like our mom. She like cleaned the house, uh, which was good because I didn't want to do it. And uh, not that, you, I love cleaning. Um, and she would help us cook, and she taught it. She was from North India, and my friend was from South. So she taught us, like, a whole bunch of food we had never heard of before, uh, which was amazing. I didn't know it was that diverse. And then one day I came home, and I'd been trying to think of, I always try to find Bibles in their languages and, and try to give them a nice Bible if I could. And I came home, and she had this, this like, really nasty uh, it had paperback FCA Bible uh, that I'd gotten when I was in youth group here or something, and she was flipping through it. I, got, I came home after work, and... She had been there already, and she was flipping through it, and she got to something that had, like, the image of Christ on the cross and a little bit of explanation, and, uh, and she just flips it in front of me, and she's like, what is this? Is this your God? I was like, wow, this is awesome. You know? I walked right into this one. Why can't it always be like this? Um, I said, yeah, that's, that's our God. What is he doing? I was like, well, he, he's dying for our sins. She didn't quite understand sin. The Hindu, the way they deal with, with evil is a little different. She's, and I said, well, they, he's, taking, he's taking all the shame of all his people. And they're an honor-shame culture. She knew that right away. Instantly, she just started crying. I was like, this is, I have no idea what just happened. Um, so she said, none of my gods do this. None of my gods, <laughs> that feels good, thank you. None of my gods do this. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, you know. Plus, they look really weird. Um, my God does not have an elephant nose. I'm really trying to sell her on it. But it's true. It's true. Uh, none of, I mean, they have hundreds of millions of gods, literally. Hundreds of millions of gods in Hinduism. And she, her family has a god, and then her state has a god, and her other, there are other gods, and then there's the main gods. And she's like, none of them take our shame. We're always having to clean up our own shame to get their favor and do this, stuff like that. And she just started crying. Justification is unique to Christianity. Unique to Christianity. We have been saved, full stop, from the penalty of sin. If we are in Christ, we will never be punished for our sin. Will we suffer the consequences of wrongdoing in this life? Sure. We'll go to jail. If you shoot me right now, at least I hope you go to jail. Uh, if you do something wrong, you may suffer a consequence. God may put things in your life to discipline you, to train you, and things like that. But it's never a punishment. Jesus took all the punishment, full stop. Secondly, remember you, have been, you, you are being sanctified. You are being sanctified. The language is important. Because you might say, well, if I've been saved from the penalty of sin, what if I keep on sinning? What if I just can't stop? This is something Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. He says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Okay? Guaranteeing, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And there's another passage in, in Romans, it's too long and it was going to take too long to get through it, where he, he, Paul himself describes this problem. I do things I don't want to do. Why, why is that? How does he have confidence in the gospel, in his justification, if he keeps on sinning. And what he describes is this issue with desire. 
I have this desire for sin. I, I hate it. But I have this deeper desire. He calls it his inmost being that wants to do the will of God. So I know my true self that has been saved is waging war against the desires of the flesh. In sanctification, we are being saved. We are being saved from the power of sin. We've been saved from the penalty. We will never suffer the consequences eternally for our sin with Jesus. We are being saved from the power. We are being saved from the power. And it's an issue of desire. When we struggle with sin, we can have confidence that God still loves us, that we're still Christians, that we haven't lost our salvation. The issue is if we do not care. If you come up and you're like, you know, I'm kind of sinning, but I'm not really sure I care. Then I think you're in trouble. And your sin may be causing you a lot of problems. Sin causes us problems. And it should bother us. But we should never doubt or question or forget that we are being saved day by day from the power of sin. But it still wages this war against us and it takes some ground from time to time. That's what Paul is talking about. Even Paul said this about himself. I do things I don't want to do. And his hope is, you know what? The Holy Spirit is inside of me. It convicts me of sin. It's a seal, like a stamp on, a, on an important letter from the king. I have it. This is my citizenship in heaven. And it's a deposit guaranteeing God's purchase of my life. So when we, even when you struggle with sin... God doesn't want you to go on in despair. He wants you to rely on him and his power and the Holy Spirit that he gave you to fight that sin and the community he gave you to help you fight that sin. Recently, I had kind of a, a positive and a tragic illustration of this in, in my world. I, I teach seniors and I teach seventh graders. It's just the reality of school sometimes. It's just crazy that have both ends of the spectrum, but I, I love it. I love having both, um, and it's helped me learn a lot about Korean culture at different age groups and things like that. But among the seniors, among the seniors, uh, not all our kids are Christian. And I had a, a, a one in particular who was very—it was kind of nice because he was like the skeptic. And so if I needed a skeptic's perspective, I could just ask him, and he was very, very glad to share his opinion. Um, and he's lived in America before, and so we actually became friends. And um, he knows I love him and things like that. But we got to the end of the year, and they, their project was to reflect on the different things we'd learned in senior Bible class. And he just got up and shared honestly. I was like, I've learned some interesting things here. Jesus seems like a really cool guy, but there is no desire within me to change anything about my life at all. Just shared it in front of everybody. He's very open. I thanked him for his honesty. He knows I'm praying for him. Of course, I'm sad, you know. But I know that seeds have been planted, and I have hope that one day he'll come around. Um, because he is honest about struggling with depression, and the only thing I can hope is he'll hit rock bottom without doing too much damage to his life, and then he'll come back, you know, or he'll come for the first time to Christ. Um, but looking at him, there's no desire, none. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about his sin. And we talked about biblical sexuality and things like that, and he was just honest. I don't care. I'm not going to stop looking at pornography. Just told the whole class. You know, it's very bold. And I said, well, it's unfortunate, of course, but I love you, and we'll, we'll carry on as friends. Then there's another kid who was also very uh, boisterous, and he was a student council president, and his name was Sejong. And that's significant because in Korean history, 
King Sejong back in the Middle Ages uh, was uh, one of their powerful kings. It was one of the few times where they actually resisted being um, taken over by a foreign power. And uh, they had a popular general. Uh, anyway, it's really fascinating. But you can go to and talk to me later, and I'll tell you the whole story. Um, but he embodied this desire for leadership, this desire for power. And in Korean society, it's very hierarchical. He was a student body, uh, student council president, and uh, he was the boss. Everyone had to bow to him. Not me. I'm not going to bow to him. But everyone bowed to him. So when my seventh grade class was leaving, they had to bow to all the upperclassmen individually. 30 kids, you know, bowing, bowing, bowing. Very honored society. And it's kind of cool sometimes. Other times I kind of hate it. Um, but in any case, Sejon was student council president, named after one of their most powerful kings in history. And he gave me a lot of lip at first. He had a big attitude because he was the boss and I'm a foreigner. And, uh, but I worked with him. I challenged him and I tried to honor him in the ways I knew how. We get to the end of the year. He does his presentation. And he stands up and he says, I've been addicted to pornography since I was little. Like seven. And he was very detailed about what that was like. A little uncomfortably so. Mixed audience. And he said, I've discovered in myself a desire to not want to do that. And I don't really understand it because I love sexual sin. But I have this desire to stop. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a one-woman man. I was like sitting at my desk. I'm like, what just happened? You know, King Sejon is repenting in front of his underlings. And they all started, I mean, he immediately had dishonored himself, so they were all laughing. So I told him, feel free to point out the other guys who do the same thing. And then they all put their heads down. But he repented. He discovered a desire within himself that was deeper than the desire for sin. And he decided that he was going to let the Holy Spirit reign in his life and fight the power of sin. We're all in the same boat. Paul was in the same boat. But won't that get exhausting? It's great to know we've been saved from sin's eternal penalties. It's good to know that even though sin will sometimes have an effect in our life now, it's power, that we have hope and help. When does it end? Shortly after what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, he goes on to say this. In verse 51 of chapter 15, verse uh, 51 through 55, he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written in the Old Testament will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? And what he's talking about here is called glorification. And this is what, in Philippians, when he said uh, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He's talking about when Christ returns, when he makes all things right, when our salvation is completed, we will be saved, we will be saved from the presence of sin. We have been saved from sin's penalty, past, present, future. We are presently being saved from the power of sin. We will one day be
be saved from the very presence of sin when we are glorified with God, when he changes us, when our imperfect, perishable bodies that die, that suffer illness, that sin, are changed and made completely righteous with him. That's the completion, the end of our sanctification, being made holy. That's what that word means, being made holy. And we have hope. We have hope. As we suffer, as we fail, as we get weak, and as we die, we need to remember glorification. We will be saved from the presence of sin and evil and death and all of that. My senior year of Bible college, I had a, uh, a roommate who was, um, had cerebral palsy. No use of his legs, limited use of his right arm. You remember Malachi, Aaron? And uh, I think it was his left arm he had full use of. That's about it. And I think he, uh, correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. I went to school with Aaron Tolinko. Uh, he only, he was a preaching major. And I think I only ever remember one sermon or one point in his sermons. And at some point in every sermon he preached, he would get to the point where he would say, one day I'm not going to be stuck in this wheelchair. And it was powerful every time. I mean, I lived with the guy. His life was hard. His life was hard. And sometimes he would be like, you know, Kyle, I'm, I feel bad for all my roommates year after year. They have to do so much work. I said, it is hard sometimes, um, to be honest. It is hard to have to, to be there with you in the restroom, in the shower, and all these things. But every time you preach, I remember that in God's eyes, spiritually, I'm like you. I'm like you are physically. I'm weak. I can't take care of myself. I can't do basic things spiritually without his help. But one day, he will fix it all. He'll give me my legs. Thank you. And it helped me remember glorification. And we will be made perfect and be with God and be with Christ. And all the things we've suffered, and Paul later says in Romans, our present sufferings will not compare to our future glory. We have to remember that. If we don't remember this, two different things will happen. One is we may fall into pride. I can justify myself. I can sanctify myself. I can glorify myself. And you don't have to look very far to see this in any society. It's true in Korea. It's true in America. It's true everywhere. They will save themselves. They will build themselves up. Or we'll fall into despair. I can't be saved. I cannot be made holy. I will never be like God. He can't fix me. I'm too broken. His cross is not as powerful as my sin. This is what happens with nihilism, with determinism, things like that. The guy, the philosopher who's famous for this was named Nietzsche. He eventually just shot himself in the head. What's the point? If you fall into pride, it's typically a secular version to be like humanism or legalism. We can follow all the rules and do it ourselves, and God will love us because of what we do. But we need to remember Christ has justified us. He is sanctifying us, and he will one day glorify us. We have to remember the gospel. Lastly, like Paul said, this is all according to the scriptures. The gospel has been faithfully preserved in the Bible and through history. Jesus appeared to people. It's real history. One of the benefits uh, that I, one of the wonderful things I had working at Lagos Bible Software for about a year and a half as a project where we flew in a lot of scholars and recorded courses that we put into the software. And there were guys doing research, historical research on the resurrection, stuff that hadn't been published yet. And I was just like, this is incredible. That they cannot, they cannot, as much as they assault the resurrection, they can't disprove it. They can't. 
They try all the time. It just can't be done. Not even from a spiritual standpoint. That's true as well. I mean, the Holy Spirit is constantly revealing himself in ways that are amazing. Just from a historical perspective, history is one of the many tools the Holy Spirit has to teach us about the truth. And it was amazing to, to see that. And just like Paul, he says he was one abnormally born. In a sense, we are as well. Just like Paul, we too have received this thing that we should pass down. And as we do, we will be reminded of the gospel. As we remind others of the gospel, we will be reminded of the gospel. And our theology should lead to doxology. Our doctrine should lead to devotion. And our wisdom should lead to worship, as we will continue to do here in a, in a second. That's its purpose. It's not just an intellectual exercise. I'm always moved by what I see in these anatomy of the gospel. It leads me to worship. And in conclusion, I'd just like to say, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Uh, and if you fail to keep all your other New Year's resolutions, but you remember the gospel, you will have a successful year. I want to invite you guys to stand and sing with us. And...